Welcome to Handel's Bank and Insights. Um, as always, I'm with James Sproul, UK Chief Economist for Handel's Bank. Good morning, James. Good morning, Daniel. So let's look at the high frequency data. I know you're, you've been tracking shipping data. What's yep. that been showing us after, uh, over the past few weeks? Well, of course, shipping is one of those things that's really been important throughout the pandemic because one of the big problems we had was all sorts of supply chain issues. And um, so we've been looking at both shipping in terms of uh, container shipping, uh, airline shipping, and then just sort of general shipping as well. So looking at each of those in turn, what we have seen in container shipping has been a real uh, cartelization of the market. So they've, they've put themselves into three big loose cartels. They've managed to push prices up. Uh, both because there was originally a bit of a dip in capacity and then a huge surge in uh, demand for lots of stuff, not just here in the UK, but really across Europe, across America, etc., which which pushed up prices. And this cartel has so far successfully uh, managed to keep those prices pretty high and not really much sign of that falling back down just yet. As far as airlines go, something similar has happened. Of course, the, the, the capacity really did fall away. Most airline um, uh, cargo is belly cargo of large commercial airliners or passenger airliners, and um, we're only starting to climb back up on the number of passenger flights and therefore the amount of belly cargo that space that's available. So all of those are, are saying um, that the prices are, are pretty high. I think it's also interesting to look at, those are the types of cargoes that are on what you might call liners, i.e. a dedicated movement from, I don't know, whether it be uh, China to Europe or, or uh, Japan to the USA or wherever it is, uh, there's a dedicated amount of space going forward part of cargo that uh, around the world that moves on shipping that is not due to that is really dry bulk uh, and that's things like iron ore or wheat or whatever that's much more uh, much more competitive market uh, a much more um, single ship going from point a to point b and probably won't redo that trip very very frequently um, what they call tramp steaming what we've seen there is very interesting as well uh, and that's been a complete collapse in the, the rates they, they went up to uh, more than double their normal rate and then have fallen back down very significantly since then. So we're seeing a, a big retracement on all of that. Okay. And um, last week we had the monthly um, earnings, employment and inflation data. Um, what should we look into that? Well, so let's start, kick off with, with earnings and employment. Um, of course, we did see some pretty, pretty steep rises in earnings over the course of 2021. Um, the ONS called that uh, compositional effects, by which they meant um, that because lots of people who are relatively low paid lost their jobs, um, that pushed the average up and they thought that a lot of the pay rise was due to that. I never really bought that as a, as a concept. Uh, I think compositional effects were overestimated and um, particularly given the um, uh, relatively low unemployment. So um, if you don't have many people becoming unemployed, it's, it's difficult to see them having that much of an impact on the overall rates. I think what we did see was in fact um, uh, some wage price inflation for sectors where there had been a good deal of unemployment coming through, but that's not the same thing as, as compositional. And um, uh, we certainly saw that popping up. What's happening now, of course, is that inflation has really popped up, which we'll come on to in just a second. Um, but uh, real pay growth, of course, fell as inflation rose, and it's only now just positive. So looking forward for to, to the rest of this year, what's, what's likely to happen well, at the moment, we see very high levels of vacancies, and um, that would tend to suggest we're going to see uh, more wage price inflation. I think that's possible, but I also think that it's more likely that we're going to see a lot of those vacancies falling away um, because we've got uh, the terrible April, um, the, the, the consequences of April of 
well, we have lots of inflation, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but also, of course, those tax rises and the uh, uh, re-rating of the energy price cap, which is going to really crimp people's ability to spend. And that's going to have lots of implications for uh, companies and the amount of hiring they might do. So I expect to see those vacancies numbers falling away and some of this wage price pressure possibly falling away with it. Okay. And as you say, turning to the inflation numbers, um, are we still on course for that very high figure in April, the Bank of England estimating 7.25% by April? Is that what we should still expect? Uh, I think it could, in, in fact, be even higher than that. Um, so just looking at what the data came out last week, uh, we're at 5.5%, so that's the highest since March 1992. I actually remember March 1992. We were uh, in um, the, the throes of uh, moving interest rates up to about 15%, which caused an enormous collapse in the housing market. Um, so this is uh, hopefully not going to be a repeat of that. In fact, of course, I'm, I'm not expecting interest rates to go anything like that high. Um, the, the situation is very, very different. But if they were to rise to unexpected levels, which would still be a long way short of, of anything like that, I would expect to see also the housing market responding pretty similarly. Looking to what's causing it now, now there still is a substantial portion of it which is due to energy, um, and we are still expecting energy prices to, if not fall, certainly plateau um, from mid-year onwards, and that will stop inflation from going up. But we do think it's likely to go uh, closer to 8 than 7 uh, be it by, by April this year, and that's going to be a quite problematic, really, for, for a lot of people, both in terms of adjusting to that higher levels of inflation and uh, also an enormous challenge to the Bank of England. The Bank of England clearly is going to be looking to raise rates, interest rates, that is, um, at the next March meeting. Uh, that's the market consensus. It's certainly our forecast as well. And we think that um, there's a little bit more um, raises, uh, interest rate raises uh, towards the uh, summer. But, but after that, the Bank of England is very, very likely to be sort of hanging back, and, and we'll talk about quantitative tightening in a moment. Uh, and some of the reasons why the Bank of England might be holding markets there. So um, how are these inflation and interest rate expectations affecting the way people are spending? Well, we looked at the retail sales data that came through for January uh, just this last week. Uh, some interesting stuff happening there. Of course, we th if we cast our minds back to um, October, November was very good because people were anticipating a uh, further wave of uh, uh, the Omicron variant to shut things down. And um, so they prepared for it. They prepared for it by shopping early. Um, and uh, the result of that was December sales were a bit down. Um, in fact, of course, the government decided not to go for very much of a shutdown as a result of Omicron. I think that was the right decision as, as things turned out. Um, but it still didn't stop people from having already done their Christmas shopping. So the January figures actually popped back up. So we, we came over the, the problem that we had had in January. Uh, and we saw um, that Omicron dip really corrected for, for the sales were up 9.1% year on year. Um, and so uh, I think that was pretty positive. A lot of that was due to fuel. The other thing that's been very interesting about retail sales, of course, has been how much of it shifted online and how much of it's going to stay there online. Well, we got uh, obviously the, the latest batch of data through on all of that. And this is one of the big post-COVID um, uh, consumer shopping habit changes. Um, we had thought that it might be as high as 28% uh, of shopping had moved from, um, uh, had become online it's probably likely to, to steady at a little bit lower than that, probably 7, 8, 26%. That's still third up on its pre-crisis, pre-Omicron uh, uh, crisis level. So quite a significant step change in the way that people around the country are shopping. Okay, so turning to monetary policy, uh, you mentioned a few times that we're expecting some interest rate hikes, uh, but we're, of course, also expecting 
to move from a process of quantitative easing to quantitative tightening. Um, and that could look uh, slightly different in terms of the pathway, the way that develops in different developed economies. Can you outline um, how that how that might play out? Absolutely. Now, so what, what um, both the Bank of England, but the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, the, the Bank of Canada, they've all undertaken uh, various amounts of quantitative easing. That is, the, the government, the central bank has stepped in and bought largely government bonds. Japan has been doing it for a long time. They've been doing it for so long that they've um, uh, diversified away from government bonds as well. They still have a lot of those, but they're also, they buy lots of equities, which uh, we haven't done at all yet. We, we buy a few corporate bonds. For the UK, um, the total stock of quantitative easing is £895 billion. Pounds. Uh, 20, 20 billion of that is corporate bonds and the rest is gilts, so government bonds. Um, and that puts us at about 40% of GDP in terms of how much uh, of this we bought. About 40% of the total outstanding gilt stock is owned by the Bank of England. Um, the US comes in a little bit lower than that, not much, about 38%, 39%, so um, roughly similar to the UK. And the European Central Bank, um, quite a bit higher than that, uh, about 70% of GDP, so uh, of Eurozone GDP. So they are, they are in a different position to the UK and the United States. It's also interesting to see um, what's going to be happening of that. Uh, the, the QE is turning into QT, quantitative tightening. And as we quantitative tightening, they're going to be reducing that debt stock. Now, we're not absolutely sure what the impact of all this is going to be. Um, it's um, uh, pretty, pretty uncertain. Daniel, you and I watched a, a program last week with, Danny, uh, with um, uh, Larry Summers, and he was, he was pretty open and honest about the fact that we hadn't done this before, and therefore the impact of it was going to be, remain pretty uncertain. So I think that I'm not wanting to be in any way uh, negative on what the central banks are doing. They're having to cautiously work their way forward. Now, the, the big date for us is the 7th of March, when uh, a £28 billion uh, gilt expires, and for the first time since 2008, we will not be reinvesting that. So the, the total stock of, of um, assets held by the Bank of England will fall. Um, and there is a plan for that to fall away. It would take... I mean, if, if we didn't do anything except allow those gilts to run off, it would take a long time, I mean, well, well uh, to do it 2060. But at the same time, the Bank of England has also said, and they've given various guidance points, that the, the most recent guidance says that when interest rates hit 1%, they will start to actively sell. Now, if you look at it, over the next few years, the uh, pace of selling of those, or pace of those assets running off, is actually pretty high. And one wonders, do you want to accelerate it beyond that if you're not absolutely sure, certain what the impact is going to be. Um, and my, my, I would urge the Bank of England a bit of caution here. Um, I've been a bit of a hawk on inflation. I remain a bit of a hawk on inflation. But obviously none of us would like to crash the economy. And therefore, a bit of caution here probably wouldn't go amiss. And will they really actively sell? I think it's one of those things that's going to make the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee pretty cautious about raising rates to 1% if they're intending to keep that idea that when we hit 1%, we start to sell. It's a reason to think that they're going to be slower to act than some of the market might be expecting at the moment. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, but we are dealing with a situation which none of us have ever been in before, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how it's going to progress. Okay, so do you think, is there anything we should be looking for in the bond market, say? I know that when the Federal Reserve earlier this decade announced just tapering, uh, for QE, there were there was some reaction in the bond market, wasn't there? There was. There was a famous taper tantrum, uh, where um, a lot of bond buyers got very very angry, and then and, um, U.S. rates spiked as a result. I think it's a lot about communication, and um, unfortunately, of course, 
I think that the Bank of England's communications has, have not always been as brilliant as they could have been in the last few months. Uh, they've sort of wrong-footed the markets in November, then again in December. Uh, and so I think a period of uh, more consultation, um, I, would, I would really appreciate some, some research reports coming to the Bank of England on what do they think the impact of QE has been, what is it going to be in future, how, how they're going to carry out QT. All of that would be very, very helpful if they were to, to publish some of their, I'm sure they've had those thoughts internally, but um, tell the rest of us what you're thinking, and that'd be great. Okay, all very interesting. Um, let, let's wrap up on a, a separate topic, which is the uh, topic of renewable energy. Yep. It's obviously important to Handelsbanken. Um, I think the ONS has published, um, done at least recent data release on renewable energy. What, what does it say? Yeah, uh, it's, this was very, very interesting. I mean, in a previous life, I actually financed renewable energy, wind, wind farms, so I, I understood them very, very well. Um, and um, they looked at uh, what they call the LCREE, the Low Carbon Renewable Energy Economy. And um, it really, it surprised me, frankly. Um, we've heard a lot about this, obviously, over the last uh, few months and years. Um, but surprisingly, the sector still accounts for around 1% of UK's financial turnover and employment. And uh, even more surprisingly, um, since 2015, it really hasn't increased. So I'm... I'm frankly, a bit stunned by that. I would have thought that we would have seen these numbers, you know, on a slow upward or maybe even faster upward progression in terms of the amount of, of turnover, the, the number of companies, and more importantly, the number of people employed. But so far, um, the green jobs that might have been promised, well, certainly they're not being reflected in the data that we're seeing just here. Okay, James, thank you very much for this week's insights um, and look forward to catching up next week. Thank you very much, Daniel.